A few years ago, I heard uh, John MacArthur was asked a question about the assurance of salvation. And I asked him, what do you do with someone who's struggling with assurance? How do you help them? What are they, if someone's struggling with insurance, what, what's their problem? His answer was interesting. He said, um, a lot of times new believers struggle with assurance merely because they haven't had the time for their faith to be tested. They haven't gone through enough trials, enough tribulations, enough suffering. They haven't had enough sin as a believer to really believe that God will hold on to them. It's through the testing of faith, through trials, persecution, and even sin that your faith is tested and proven. You think of like James 1, or even in 1 Peter, when Peter says that your faith is tested by fire to be proven. It's through those trials that you can look back on, that you can see the faithfulness of God holding you, preserving you, caring for you. They're examples of His faithfulness. When you're going through them, it doesn't feel that way. But when you look back, you can see how faithful He has been to you. And the more time you have walking in the Lord, the more trials and tribulations, the more sin you'll have as a believer the more things you will have to look back to to say he really is faithful. He really does keep his promises. Israel was in the same position. Israel had a long time of being with Yahweh. And they had plenty of sin and they had plenty in their history that they should be able to look back on and say, you know what, Yahweh was faithful to us. We can trust him. Even in their sin and their rebellion, that was the billboard that God used to demonstrate His faithfulness to the nation. In chapter 12, God, speaking through the prophet Hosea, is going to remind them of the lessons they've learned throughout their history. He's going to remind them not only of their sin, but how God, despite their unfaithfulness, God has been there faithfully sustaining them, caring for them, loving them, providing for them. And it is God's faithfulness that he is going to use as the impetus, as the motivation for them to repent, to turn from their sin. Yahweh is going to use all of that to demonstrate that he has been faithful to them. And if you have the handout, you'll see the, the title of today's class, The Faithfulness of Yahweh. So let's look at the very first the very first point. Yahweh's faithfulness is demonstrated through Jacob. Now these first two verses are going to seem like they take forever, but they're going to kind of set the stage, the moral setting. Look at uh by the way, we're doing chapter 11 verse 12, not verse 2. Typo on the handout. Chapter 11 verse 12 through chapter 12 verse 14. So we're starting in chapter 11, verse 12. He says, Ephraim surrounds me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. This is Yahweh speaking. He's speaking through Hosea. And notice he says, they surround me with lies. He doesn't say Israel is full of lies, like Israel's over there and I'm over here. He pictures himself as being in Israel, and they are surrounding him with lies. Even in the midst of their sin, he hasn't abandoned them. 
This was a nation marked by deception. It was marked by dishonesty. Um, this is something he's talked about repeatedly. If you go back to Hosea chapter 4, verse 2, he says there is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. And when we talked about that, we said all of those are happening at the same time. Swearing and deception. It's like making a promise with your fingers crossed. Hosea 7, verse 3. With their wickedness, they make the king glad, and the princes with their lies. Chapter 7, verse 13. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies. Chapter 10, verse 13. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies. This was a nation marked by dishonesty, by deception. And this kind of language, for him to speak of Israel this way, is a really bad sign. Because God speaks of other nations that he destroyed in this way. You remember the city of Nineveh? The city Jonah went to preach to? And they all repented and turned aside. Well, later, another prophet came back to them and encouraged them to repent. In Nahum 3, verse 1, he says, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies. It's not a good thing when God says of your country it's full of lies. Yahweh is surrounded by their lies, and he also says the house of Israel is surrounded by deceit. The house of Israel is a reference to just the ruling authorities, all the government agencies, the different rulers in the nation. And he says they are full of deceit. Literally, full of fraud and tricks. This was the same word used by Isaac to Esau. When Isaac told Esau that your brother has stolen your blessing. Genesis 27-35, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. He came as a fraudster, and he tricked me into giving away your blessing. That's the, the term he uses here, Hosea uses for Israel. The entire nation, from the king all the way down through the priest to all the people, they were all corrupt, they were deceitful, and they were described as a bunch of liars. Verse 12 again. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Now, normally, this would not be a challenge. This would be a very simple verse to look at. But is, is there anyone here who's not reading the NASB this morning? Okay, one. All right, a couple people. Now, if you're not reading the NASB, your Bible says something very different. If you're reading the ESV, it says something really different. And so I have to address this because some of you are going to be really confused why your translation is so very different than the one I'm using. In ASB, Judah is unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Look how the ESV translates this. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Just a little bit different, isn't it? Slightly. The New Living Translation, but Judah still obeys God and is faithful to the Holy One. The NET, but Judah still roams about with God. He remains faithful to the Holy One. 
and the NIV. Surprising. Judah is unruly against God, even against the faith, the holy, uh, the faithful holy one. So you see, we have two different very excuse me, we have two very different views of this one verse. Some, like the ESV, translates this in a positive way. Positive meaning it's saying something good about Judah. The NASB and the NIV translate this in a negative way. It's saying something bad about Judah. Now, both of these can't be true. One of these two views is wrong. So what's the issue? Why, are there such, why is there such a disparity between the two translations? The difference comes in how you understand one word. That one. The Hebrew word rod. In English, it would be R-A-D, but the A would be pronounced like father. In the ESV, they translate it as walks. NLT obeys. NET roams. And NIV is unruly. That's the one word that... Depends on how you translate that one word is, will determine what side of this, this coin you end up on. Whether you side with the NASB or you go with the ESV. So what does this one little word mean? The ESV translates this as walks with God. And I wanted to see, does the ESV translate that anywhere else as walks? In the sense of being obedient and submissive. Well, the reason why this one little word is so hard is because it's only used five times in the Bible. The answer is no. The ESV never translates this as walks other than here. They use it in Genesis 27, verse 40, and they translate it, when you grow restless. It's used in Psalm 55, verse 2, I am restless. And it's used again in Judges eleven thirty-seven, go up and down on the mountains. That was the story of the man who made the vow in Judges. And it says, whatever is the first thing that comes out of the city, I'll offer up to you, and his daughter walks out. And he starts weeping and tells her what he did, and she says, well, let me go up on the mountain with my friends to mourn, and then I'll come back, and you can fulfill your vow. And that's the word she uses. It's the idea of going up and down, kind of back and forth. This is the only place ESV translates this as walks with God. So let's accept the ESV's translation for just a moment. If you accept it and you say, well, this means to walk with God, there's an adverb here that's not translated that means they're continually walking with God. They've been doing this constantly, ongoingly. To walk with God means you are obedient, you are submissive, and they have been doing it continually. But here's the question. Which God are we talking about? Are we talking about Yahweh or are we talking about Baal? The word he uses here is El. It's not Yahweh, it's El. El is where we get Elohim. El can refer to a pagan god, so it could be used of Baal, or it could be used of Yahweh. Hosea seems to use it in only one way. He uses El only to describe Yahweh. It's used three times in the book, not including this one. All three times, it's referring to Yahweh. It's in parallel with the end the Holy One who is faithful. Baal is never described as the Holy One. He's never described as being faithful. So we have to assume that he's talking about Yahweh here. So the ESV's translation would say that 
Judah was walking faithfully with Yahweh. They were submissive, they were obedient, and they were following after Yahweh. But that does pose a little bit of a problem, doesn't it? It poses a problem in the immediate context. If you go down to chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord also has a dispute with Judah. Dispute here is the same word he used in Hosea 4, verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. It's talking about a legal charge. Remember, that was the one where Yahweh takes Israel to court and he presents the, the criminal case against them. So if we take chapter 11, verse 12 as a positive thing, saying that Judah walked faithfully with God, when we get down to verse 2, now we're confused. Okay, so it doesn't work in the immediate context. What about within the context of the entire book? Does Hosea at any point say that Judah was faithful? Uh, no. He refers specifically to Judah 15 times. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, the king of Judah. There are four references to Judah that you might take as a positive. Chapter 4, verse 15. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. And some might say, well, that means Judah wasn't guilty. But if you look at the context, what he's really saying is, Judah's not as guilty as the northern kingdom. The other three positive statements aren't saying anything about the nation of Judah itself. The other three positive statements are all in chapter, well, two of them are in chapter 1, and one of them is in chapter 6. Chapter 1, verse 7. I just went all the way back to Daniel. How did I do that? Chapter 1, verse 7. He says, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God. Deliver them from what? Judgment. Chapter 1, verse 11. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. Why would they need to be gathered together again? Because the judgment was going to be, they were going to be dispersed and spread out. This is talking about deliverance from judgment. Chapter 6, verse 11. Same thing. Also, Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. This is talking about the faithfulness of Yahweh in restoration after Judah would face judgment. It's not saying that Judah was faithful. It's saying the exact opposite. So what about those other nine references? I'm just going to hit a couple of these. I'm not going to go through all of them. Chapter 5, verse 5, Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah has stumbled with them. Chapter 5, verse 10, The princes of Judah become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath. Chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore I am like a moth to Ephraim, and rottenness to the house of Judah. Chapter 5, verse 14, He says he will be like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. Does this sound like a nation that's walking with God? Does this sound like a nation that is faithful to Yahweh? 
Chapter 6, verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Yeah, you're loyal when it benefits you. And if it doesn't benefit you, you're done. They weren't faithful. You can do the same thing, Hosea 8, 14, Hosea 10, 11. We're not going to read all of them. So back to 11, verse 12. What is the saying? Well, I don't think the ESV's translation here is effective or useful. The NASB translates this as unruly. The term refers to being um, restless, to wandering, to roaming, to going back and forth. There is one other text that helps us in the use of this word. It's Jeremiah 2, verse 31. God is speaking to the nation of Judah. And in verse 28 of Jeremiah 2, he asks them, where are your gods? Where are these other gods that you keep talking about? Why aren't they coming to your aid? Jeremiah 2, verse 31. O generation, heed the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why do my people say we are free to roam? There's our word, free to roam. We will no longer come to you. The you there is Yahweh. The word here in Jeremiah 2 is describing a people that is wandering from Yahweh. That is turning away from him. They're not walking faithfully with him. They're chasing after other idols. They're going to and fro, you might say. God's people tell their maker, we're free to go anywhere we want. We can be restless. We can go to and fro. We don't have to come back to you. We can chase after these other gods. And in fact, in Jeremiah 2, in the next verse, he says, my people have forgotten me. When Hosea wrote 11, chapter 11, verse 2, I think the NASB comes the closest. And by the way, the NIV gets it right there too. They were unruly. They weren't following after Yahweh. They weren't faithful to his commands. They were roaming to and fro, going after other gods, making alliances with pagan nations. And if you, if you understand this verse, it's describing them as being unruly. It makes perfect sense in the context. When you get down to chapter 12, verse 2, and he says Yahweh has a case against Judah, makes perfect sense now. There's no disconnect. And this explains why Yahweh has a charge against them. Okay, that was a long explanation. Any questions? I didn't want someone sitting in the back going, what? My Bible doesn't say that. Okay. So, Good, yeah. Uh, in the ESV in chapter 4, it says that Yahweh has an indictment against the nation. Um, okay, back to uh, Hosea. Let's look at verse 12. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. Feeds on refers to pasturing, reviving, nurturing. They're looking to wind to nurture them to give them sustenance. They're set on feeding on the wind, seeking nourishment from air. 
Isaiah used similar language um, in Isaiah 44. Speaking of a nation that's idolatrous, he says he feeds on ashes. He's trying to find sustenance and provision from something that doesn't exist, that's not there. And it's not just the wind, Hosea 12, verse 1 again, and pursues the east wind continually. Um, guys, think of a map of Israel. What's to the east of Israel? Huh? Desert. The east wind is that hot, dry, arid wind that blows in from the east. The east wind is destructive. In Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel describes Israel as a vine. And he says in verse 10, Behold, though it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not completely wither? As soon as the east wind strikes it, the east wind makes the plant wither. The east wind is said to destroy ships. Psalm 48, verse 7, With the east wind you break the ships of Tarshish. Notice 48, verse 7 says, You, speaking of Yahweh, it is Yahweh who controls the east wind. It's Yahweh who brings this destructive wind into the land. It's a picture of judgment. It's used by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 19.12 to describe God bringing judgment. Even Hosea, if you go to Hosea 13, look at verse 15. Though he flourishes among the reeds... The east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his springs will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. They're chasing after judgment. As they go to these false gods, these fake gods, looking for these gods to provide for them, they chase after judgment. Into verse 1, chapter 12 again. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. We've discussed the lies and dishonesty. Here, he ties those lies into their political maneuverings with uh, Assyria and Egypt. The very last king of the northern kingdom was a guy named Hosea. It's actually spelt the same way as Hosea. But the last king was a guy named Hosea. And Hosea goes to the, north, to the king of Assyria, 2 Kings 17. He goes to him and tells the king, look, don't invade us. Don't take us over. We'll pay you. And the Assyrian king says, fine with me. Well, eventually the king of the northern kingdom, Hosea, decides, I don't want to pay this guy. I don't want to do this. So he turns around and he goes back to the south and he goes to Egypt and he goes to their king and starts trying to make a deal with them. And in 2 Kings 17, uh, verse 4, it says, But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, dishonesty, because he had sent messengers to the king of Egypt and refused to pay the tribute to the king of Assyria. And the very next verse says that Assyria invaded the land and destroyed Israel. And that's likely what he's referring to when he says he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Oil here just refers to the tribute, the payment that was made to Egypt. Instead of paying it to the person he agreed to, he went to Egypt and tried to get out of it. 
Hosea 12, verse 2, The Lord has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Here he combines both nations. He's already kind of set the stage with Israel and Judah, and now he brings them both together. Both of them are facing judgment. First Israel, and now Judah. And Yahweh will give to both of them what they deserve. And it's here he's also going to begin calling them to repentance. Before he was calling them to repentance, how? Throughout the book, he called them to repentance by doing what? He threatened what? Destruction. Judgment. Do this or else. Here he's going to give a little honey. And he's going to try to attract them back to Yahweh by giving evidence of Yahweh's faithfulness. And he does that first with Jacob. You guys thought I forgot point one, didn't you? In Jacob, we have a picture of Israel. Israel, both the northern and the southern kingdom. Hosea 12, verse 3, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity he contended with God. If you want to put a marker in the book of Genesis, I'm going to be going back and forth. This is a reference to the patriarch Jacob from the book of Genesis. And it's a well-known story. You guys know the story of the birth of Jacob. When he was born, he grabbed his brother's heel and pulled him out of the womb. Genesis 25, verse 26. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Esau actually means hairy. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. The word Hosea uses here for grabbing his brother's heel, it refers to going behind someone, to sneak up on someone, and to try to supplant them, to take over. It refers to trying to overtake and supplant his brother, to take his place. And this is a wonderful description of Jacob because it describes his life. Genesis 25, he tricked his brother into selling his birthright so he could take his brother's inheritance. Genesis 27, he tricked Isaac, their father, to give Esau's blessing to Jacob. Took his brother's place in the blessing. Twice, Jacob supplanted his brother. And in fact, Esau even makes the connection between Jacob's name, which means dishonesty and trickster, with his behavior. Genesis 27, verse 36, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Jacob was so eager to get the blessings of God that he was willing to trick, he was willing to lie, he was willing to steal to get what he wanted. And the nation of Israel perfectly matches. So eager to get the blessings of Yahweh, to get all the provision that Yahweh promised them, that they were willing to be dishonest, deceptive, tricksters, fraudsters. They were behaving just like their forefathers. Jacob's a perfect picture of the nation of Israel. Hosea 12, verse 3 again, And in his maturity he contended with God, You guys know what this event is? 
I'm sorry? Yeah, he wrestled with the angel, with the angel of the Lord. He wrestled with Yahweh. He uses the word contend. Hosea used the word contended. It's the same word used in Genesis 20, uh, excuse me, 32. Verse 28, he says, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven. You have contended with God and with men and have prevailed. And so God changes his name from Jacob, which means trickster, fraudster, and he changes it to Israel. You know what Israel means? It means to fight, to contend, to strive. Hosea 12, verse 4, yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. Now, I just want to point out here, if you read the commentaries, this is where you just have to step back for a moment. Pastor was talking about last week in a sermon, sometimes he reads commentaries and he just wants to close them and put them away. I actually read a commentary of a good, faithful, trustworthy guy who said that when Hosea said that Jacob wrestled with God, Hosea just didn't understand. And when Jacob said he wrestled with God, he just misunderstood the situation. And the reason he said that is because Hosea, verse 12, says he wrestled with an angel. I mean, never mind the fact that the Bible clearly says he wrestled with God. But, okay, we'll leave that. So in what sense did Jacob prevail? In what sense did he win? He prevailed in the sense that he acquired what he was asking for. He didn't really prevail in the actual physical wrestling. He just didn't give up. That's not winning. He, he prevailed in getting what he wanted. Genesis 32, 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Verse 26, then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not go unless you bless me. The angel then asks for Jacob's name. Jacob tells him. The angel changes his name, says, You're no longer Jacob, you are now Israel. Genesis 32, 29, Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he says, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. He got what he wanted. He got what he came for. He prevailed in acquiring the blessing of God that he was after. After all of his deceit, after all of his tricking, after all of his dishonesty, after all of his failures, God still blessed him. God still gave what he asked. This is demonstrated in the second part of Hosea 12, verse 4. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Jacob actually met God at Bethel twice. Once when he was fleeing from his home to Laban's house. Genesis 28, Jacob has a dream. And it's Yahweh speaking to him, and I want you to hear what Yahweh said, Genesis 28, verse 13, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Verse 14, 
Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God turns to this trickster, this fraudster, this liar, and said, despite all of your sin, despite all of your failure, I'm still going to fill the Abrahamic covenant. Yes? Is that, is that a continuation of the Abrahamic covenant? Yeah. That's a, that's a restatement of the... It's not a new one. It's a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant. God made a promise to Abraham that he would bless Abraham and his descendants, and through his descendants he would bless the entire world. This same covenant is reaffirmed. God is faithful to his covenant despite the fact that Jacob was such a moral failure. Yahweh will still be faithful to his promises. And he reaffirmed those promises in Genesis 35, 10-12. I don't have time to read them. And in both cases, God appears to Jacob at Bethel. And in both cases, God promises to be faithful to his promises despite Jacob's sin, despite his failures. The promises he made to Abraham are still good. And they're still valid for his descendants. And those descendants are now the inhabitants of the nation of Israel. They're now living in the land. And by telling Jacob this, I'm going to be faithful to my promises to you. That promise is also being made to Jacob's descendants. And that's what he says at the end of Hosea verse 4. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with who? Us. The, the us is the nation of Israel, the descendants of this trickster. They are his biological and his moral heirs. And Hosea wants to emphasize just who it is that made these promises. This wasn't Baal making a promise. Look at Hosea 12, verse 5. Even the Lord, let me say it another way, even Yahweh, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God, even Yahweh, the God of hosts, the God of Sabaoth, the Lord is his name, the God who reigns in heaven, the Holy One of Israel. This was the God who showed up in Exodus 3 with Moses. This is the God that delivered them out of Egypt, who guided them through the wilderness, who brought them into the promised land. That God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants. And up until that point, he had fulfilled everything he had promised for them. Hosea 12, verse 6, Therefore, return to your God. Repent. Stop sinning. Go back to the covenants. Start being faithful once again. Do the deeds that are commanded in the covenant. Hosea 12, verse 6 again, Observe kindness and justice. Kindness here is loving kindness. The kind of loving kindness that God gives. That's a little redundant to say it that way. The kindness that God shows. It's loyal love. Covenant love. 
Act righteously. Be just. Obey the commands. Chapter 12, verse 6 again, and wait for God continually. Here, here, waiting is not referring to just sitting there passively, just watching the time tick. It's talking about having an eager hope and expectation. Placing their hope in Yahweh, looking to Yahweh to provide for them and to care for them. Same idea is expressed in Psalm 37, verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land when the wicked are cut off and you will see it. To wait for the Lord means to obey the covenant, to live in faithful obedience to Yahweh. God was being patient with his wayward nation. And he was faithfully keeping his promise. And that kindness and that patience and the delay in judgment was supposed to bring about repentance. They should have been able to look at their past and look at God being faithful to them and say, Yahweh has been so faithful and so kind to us, we should repent and turn back to him. It's what Paul said in Romans 2. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness... Kindness of God leads you to repentance. God delayed his judgment. And it's foolish to believe that delay in judgment is a sign that God is indifferent to sin. That he just doesn't care about it. It's folly to think that the faithful, perfectly holy and just God will not fulfill his promise to judge sin. If God is leaving you alone in your sin, if you're running off into sin and God hasn't brought judgment, one of two things is true. One, God is showing you patience and kindness, and he's giving you ample time to repent. Or two, you're not his. Romans 2 verse 5 says, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God's kindness and faithfulness of faithfulness should drive us to repent. It should have driven them to repent, but it didn't. Second point. Boy, we need to speed up. My slides are out of order here. God demonstrated his faithfulness through the Exodus. Hosea 12, verse 7. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. We know this is a reference to Israel, it's the northern kingdom. We know that because of verse 8, it mentions Ephraim specifically. Here Ephraim is called a merchant, the word he uses is actually the word Canaan. Canaan is a reference to um, the Phoenicians. Phoenicia is the purple, up at the top. The Phoenicians were merchants. They were well known for their trading and their business acumen across the Med. The same word Canaan is also a term used to describe the first inhabitants of the land when Israel moved in. You know, the more immoral, godless pagans that God destroyed and wanted out of the land. Jose employs a little double entendre. And he calls Israel Canaan's. 
referring to their business and their trading and their immoral lifestyle. Kind of a double illustration. That's exactly how Israel was behaving. They had the morals of the Canaanites and the business of the Phoenicians. And just like the Canaanites, they deserve destruction. How do we know that they were immoral in their business? Verse 7 again, they used false balances. In those days, they didn't have um, systematized weights and measures. And so they could change the weighting a little bit and play some games, and they can con you out of money. And this is how they would oppress people. He says they love to oppress. They love to exploit people, to abuse their power and their authority, to take advantage of people. I don't have time to read it, but there's a... And I didn't put the reference in here. Oh, Amos 5, verses 11 and 12. If you want to look that up later, he actually describes them imposing high rents on people, on the poor. He says, you distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor at the gate. You're abusive. You love it. And how successful were they in cheating people? Hosea 12, verse 8. And Ephraim said, surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. Their cheating and corrupt business business practices were paying off. And they were happy about it. They loved it. Verse 8 again, in all my labors, they will find in me no iniquity which would be sin. This is Ephraim speaking. If you look at our life though, you won't see any iniquity in us. Spiritual blindness. Hearts were so hardened, so corrupt, that they thought God was approving of their behavior. Why did they think that? Because they had all this money. They were rich. And they assumed that because they were rich, that means God was happy with them. They forgot what the psalmist said. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. But Yahweh had made some promises to them. He promised to be their God. He promised to guide and protect them. And he promised that if they didn't obey, he would discipline them. God's not okay with his people living in sin. And he was going to be faithful in bringing about that judgment. Look at verse 9. He says, But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. This reminds you of Deuteronomy 5, verse 6. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He points them back to the first exodus. He said, I've been your God since then. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who gave you this land. I've been faithful to you the entire way. And now he's going to be faithful to them in another way. He's going to be faithful to them in bringing judgment, and he's going to bring about a new exodus. This one is not going to be an exodus from bondage. The new exodus is going to be an exodus from the promised land into the Gentile nations. Notice verse 9 again. I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of the appointed festival. Tents again, this is what they were living in when they came out of Egypt. They were back in the wilderness. They had no home. And once again, they will be back in tents with no home. They will be out of their land. 
At the end of the verse, he says, as in the days of the appointed festival, the appointed festival is the Feast of Tabernacles, when they would actually go and build tents and stay in them for a few days to remember the Exodus. That's going to be your new home permanently because I'm going to remove you from the land. They would be forced to be dependent on Yahweh again. Because all their wealth, all their power, all their military might, all that was going to go away. They wouldn't be able to depend on that anymore. Um, the sword of divine faithfulness cuts both directions. God is faithful to fulfill every promise. That includes promises of blessing and judgment. And they forgot. His blessings, his provision should result in them being faithful. It should result in them repenting. And his promises of judgment, his faithfulness to judgment, should also bring them to repentance. But it didn't. This brings us to point three. He demonstrated his faithfulness through the prophets. The prophets are another sign of God's faithfulness. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. I have also spoken to the prophets, and I gave numerous visions. And through the prophets, I gave parables. God spoke to the prophets. Literally, God spoke through the prophets. He spoke through the prophets to the nation of Israel. Their ministries, the ministry of the prophets, were acts of God's grace. They were acts of His mercy to this nation. And they warned them repeatedly, judgment is coming. And they gave this revelation in a whole bunch of different ways. Prophets like Ezekiel came and put on divinely inspired little plays. You know, set up a brick and pretend it's Jerusalem, write Jerusalem on it and bring siege against it. It's a unique way to tell them you're in trouble. Others had visions, like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he saw a vision of the Lord high and lifted up. Others gave parables. Little stories that are kind of enigmatic. You might say that of some of what Hosea has said. Some of what Hosea says is hard to understand. These prophecies were a grace gift. It was God speaking to Israel. It's a, a demonstration of his faithfulness. He loved them and he cared for them and he gave them every chance he could to repent. But they didn't. Hosea 12 verse 11, is there iniquity in Gilead? The answer to that question is an obvious yes. We know that because of the rest of the verse, surely they are worthless, they are nothing the root word here of worthless means to be deceptive, to be false. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. I don't need to explain sacrificing bulls. I think you understand what that means. Gilgal was another center of idolatrous worship. And here, he pictures judgment in a unique way. He said their altars will be like heaps. A heap is a big pile of stone. Yeah, and it's going to be on the furrows. Furrows are the little trenches that are dug by the plow. Here's the idea. They went out and plowed their fields to get ready to plant. But before they could plant, 
judgment came and all their altars are smashed and lying on the unused fields. Nobody's there to plant them. Kind of a graphic picture, isn't it? And they were going to lose more than just their good bulls. Yeah. Um, worthless. It the root of that word means to be deceptive. Israel received all of this revelation, all of this communication from God, and that revelation did two things. One, it taught them who God is and enabled them to live in relationship with Him. That's a good thing. The second thing it did is it removed all excuses for sinful living. Because of all the revelation, they had no reason, no excuse for their behavior. Matthew eleven twenty three, Jesus is speaking to Capernaum. And he says, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Because you've seen all the revelation. You've seen the miracles. You've been taught. You know better. Just a quick application. Coming to a Bible-believing church, hearing the Bible taught and preached is a wonderful blessing. But if you don't follow what James says and be doers of the word, it'll just add to your judgment. God was faithful to Israel. He pleaded with them over decades and centuries. He sent them prophets to warn them, to call them to repentance. That mercy and grace should have led to repentance. But it didn't. Final point. Yahweh demonstrated his faithfulness through Israel. Look at chapter 12, verse 12. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram. And Israel worked for a wife. And for a wife, he kept sheep. Hosea now goes back to pointing to the person of Jacob. And he points back to him and his fleeing to Aram. So he goes to Aram. His father told him, Arise, go to Aram. Go to Laban's house. Don't marry a woman from the Canaanites. Go to Aram. Marry one of Laban's daughters. Genesis 28.2. Genesis 29. Jacob meets Rachel. Sparks fly. He loves her. And he agrees to work for Laban for the bride's price for seven years. And Laban does to Jacob exactly what Jacob did to his brother. He tricks him and sends the other daughter. And so Jacob ends up working another seven years. And what was the work that he was doing for his wife? He was keeping sheep. And again, this is a sign of God's faithfulness to him. Jacob was told at Bethel that God would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant through Jacob. That he would receive all of those promises. This trickster, this fraudster would receive all of those promises. And he would receive a multitude of descendants. And now God is faithful to that promise and he provides him not one wife, but two. 
I'm not endorsing polygamy. Don't, don't get me wrong. But notice before we go to verse 13, notice there's a change in names. First part of the verse, uh, he calls him Jacob. Then at the second part of the verse, he calls him Israel. Keep that in mind as we go to verse 13. Chapter 12, verse 13, But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel and Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. In verse 13, he is now speaking of the entire nation of Israel, which is why he changed, put the second name in the first verse, in verse 12. So that way in this verse he can change to now speaking about the entire nation. He's not referring to the individual, he's referring to all of them. Hosea now points back to the Exodus again. This time, Yahweh's faithfulness is depicted in a prophet who brought Israel out of Egypt. Obviously, we know who this is. This is Moses. And through the prophet Moses, he, that would be the nation of Israel, was kept. They were cared for like sheep. They were guarded, they were provided for, they were protected, they were blessed, they were brought into the promised land, they were fed, they were given an abundance. 1 Samuel 12, verse 8, When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place, in the promised land. It was a sign of God's provision and His blessing and His protection. Psalm 77, verse 20, You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You guided them like sheep, and you cared for them in the same way. And thinking about that care and provision, not only the life of the patriarch, but seeing that care and provision for the sinful nation throughout the entire wilderness experience should have brought about some repentance. It just didn't. Verse 14. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him. The first phrase is obvious. The northern kingdom's sin incurred the anger and the wrath of God. The term bitter anger actually refers to an internal vexation to be provoked on the inside. It describes how grievously hurt God is by sin. And that anger once again manifests the faithfulness of Yahweh. Yahweh will be faithful to Israel. And He will be faithful to act in accordance with His own nature and with His own, his own decrees. God is holy, God is just, and He will judge sin. And since you refuse to repent, notice verse 14 again, the Lord will leave his blood guilt on him. Lord here is not Yahweh. It's Adonai. Their master will leave their blood guilt on them. Israel would now face the penalty for their own sins. Blood guilt here refers to the penalty for really grievous sins like murder. By blood guilt, it means you are deserving of death. And Adonai promises to bring that upon them. Israel had rejected 
Yahweh as their God. They turned to Baal. They rejected him as their provider. They turned to themselves, their business. They turned to sin. They had no desire for him to fulfill his role as their king, as their God. They rejected him in every way possible. They said, we're done with you, Yahweh. But that didn't really matter. Because Yahweh's role as king and as ruler over Israel was not based on Israel. It was based on his promises. And Yahweh is faithful to his promises. And they weren't going to be able to get rid of him that easily. He promised that if they obeyed, he would bless them. And if they disobeyed, they would receive discipline. And all their complaining and all their telling God to go away wasn't going to change the fact that God was now going to be faithful to the promise to bring discipline. And he intends to fulfill that promise. And he did in 722. He's still their sovereign ruler. He's still the king over Israel. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of the judgments that fell on Israel. By the way, I can give you that if you don't have it. And Paul says the things that happened to them in the wilderness, that some of them were laid low, happened to them as examples so that you would not do the same thing. So that you and I would learn the lesson. These things happened as examples so that we would repent, that we would not be as foolish as Israel Israel ignored the prophets, they ignored all the revelation, they ignored the promises of God, they ignored all the acts of God's faithfulness to them in their history and the lives of their forefathers, and they ran headlong into sin and embraced their sinful lifestyle. You need to understand that if you do the same thing, Yahweh is going to be faithful to you as well. And his faithfulness means that he will do exactly what he promised. God's made promises. He promised that every sin will be punished. Exodus 34, 7. And he will be faithful to that promise. He said that no one will be saved without Christ. Acts 4, 12. And he will be faithful to that promise. He said that if you trust in Christ, you will be saved. The entire New Testament. And he will be faithful to that promise. And he said, if you come to him, he will not cast you out. He said, if you confess your sins, he will forgive. That sword of divine faithfulness cuts in both directions. Which side are you on? Are you trusting the faithfulness of Yahweh to provide and to care for you? Or are you just hoping the other side it won't be there? Okay. Wow, I didn't leave any time here. Any questions, concerns? Yes. Kind of proves total depravity. Yes. Israel is a great demonstration of total depravity. Any other questions, concerns? Let me pray real quick, and if you have any other questions, you guys can come and see me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are faithful, that you do keep your promises. And Father, we just ask that if there is sin in our lives that we have not repented of, that we have not turned from, if there are people in this room who have not trusted in your promises and turned to Christ, that uh, you would change our hearts, that you would continue to be merciful, and that you would be faithful.
as you always have been, and that you would call us to repentance and that we would be able to respond um, as you desire. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.